boundaries change depending on who has power. So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. I don't think I need to introduce our guest, John Law, the pioneer of secret society's lifestyle and the propagator of creative bravery. Today, John is a partner at The Laughing Squid, an art, culture and technology blog. It is one of my unadulterated inspiration sources. Whenever I feel low on the creative juices, I go there and it does magic to me. Wow. You should follow it one way or the other, really. He's also involved in great many creative communities all over the place. And we will talk about it quite a bit, I hope, today. John, you wrote to me once, and I hope that you don't mind me citing it, that it seems... Uh (laughs) It seems to me that so many of my experiences over the decades are similar to the the sad character Justine, Uh, (laughs) although with the adventures changed from horrifying to being generally quite wondrous. I love it. John, so awesome to have you today with us. Great. All right. I'm glad to be back again. It's lovely to talk to both of you. Um, And I'll stand by that Justine quote. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So could you tell us what are you up to these days? Well, I am working on a 42-year retrospective show of stuff that I've been doing for 42 years um, at a wonderful gallery in Oakland, California called Pro Arts Gallery. I'm going to have the whole gallery for almost three months. I do uh, neon art, among other things. And uh, I, I didn't start out as an artist. Um, let's put it that way. The Suicide Club and later Cacophony, we didn't really consider what we were doing to be art. And that's not just being precious or uh, contrarians. We really did look at what we're doing as uh, living. And I was never a painter. I'm not a sculptor or anything like that. So I always felt uneasy calling myself an artist. But after 40 years, I looked back, I said, okay, I've done a bunch of stuff. I guess it's art. So I give up. It's art. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it could be a lot worse. I could be a stockbroker, right? So, uh, but I have made things and I've occasionally sold a couple pieces. So now I'm kind of concentrating a little bit more on making, you know, some large scale and some smaller neon art pieces, multimedia, primarily with neon being the, the big factor. Um, so doing that, there'll, there'll be eight or nine pieces in the show, including the uh, two of them were pranks. And the one prank was a neon skull and lettering that we put on a Joe Camel cigarette billboard back in 1996. If you show the photo, you'll be able to see what I mean. Part of this giant installation on a billboard that we did that was completely illegal and changing the billboard. We had a six foot tall red neon skull that we put over the cartoon character cigarette salesman's face and <laughs> brilliant that was taken down we have photographs of it it was in the press it, w- it went around the world it was in a bunch of magazines and press and we were an, an anonymous group so nobody knew who did it you know we had a phony names that we used and i recreated that piece some years ago and used a background with an image that i took uh, from the uh, cigarette company of their spokesman who was a cartoon character camel you may <laughs> remember joe camel i don't know if you had him in Camel cigarettes. It was a very famous advertisement here, advert here in the States. And I recreated that with a big backdrop about five foot by five foot, you know, like a, a meter by a meter or a little bit bigger. We made a neon skull, which we put over it. And so I, it was an art piece. I made it as an art piece. It's been in a few gallery shows 
and it'll be in this show that I'm doing. And then that was a prank, making fun of these giant cigarette corporations. Mm. And then I recreated it as an art object. Talk, call me venal, whatever. Hopefully mm. somebody will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe Carl would buy it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, shit. Okay. Uh, that would be funny. On, that the joke that would be, be on, joke on you, right? <laughs> on me. Oddly enough, though, in the Billboard Liberation Front, two times I was offered advertising jobs by advertising agencies, and they didn't know my real name. So I turned them down. Hmm. I turned them down, which is why I'm still broke. So uh, <laughs> my bad. Uh, and the other neon prank, uh, which I'll send you photographs of as well, is an eight-foot-tall, three-dimensional neon vagina. Oh, wow. And that was made for a piece for a, an all-woman art show that was done in San Francisco. It was curated by a friend of mine, Michelle Maine. And it was all women in the show. And so I asked a friend of mine, Dana Albany, who's a wonderful local artist, if she would collaborate with me. I changed my name to Sarah Melmoth. And we made the art piece together. It was put in the show. And it was a benefit for a battered woman's shelter. So our piece sold for $4,200. Wow. So the, all that money went to charity. The woman who bought it donated it to the women's building in San Francisco, which is an all-women's building that has services for indigent women, battered women. I mean, it has all kinds of things going on there for women, where, where it's been hanging for the last 16 years. So I asked them if I could borrow the piece. Oh, and, and the other thing I didn't mention is the piece was used also for an introductory piece for the Vagina Monologues by Eve Insler, very, very famous American female artist in the early 2000s who did a thing called the Vagina Monologues, which she toured all around the world with and in major venues all around the world talking about vaginas, which is one of the first times that it had been a public topic. The piece was chosen out of all the other female art pieces, along with two other art pieces, which were both beautiful pieces, to be put into the Masonic Auditorium, which is one of the two premier auditoriums in San Francisco, mm -hmm. for this woman's presentation. So I showed up with a giant eight-foot neon vagina dressed kind of like I am now. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm the guy here. With, I'm supposed to install the neon vagina. Where do you want it, gals? You want me to put it over there or over there? And so I installed it. <laughs> and so to this date, nobody really knows that. And with that said, I'm sure some people will be annoyed by that or upset by that. But mm -hmm. I consider it a, a very whimsical prank. And the fact that we raised that much money for women's causes, I, hopefully the women won't beat me up for doing it. <laughs> I don't think that was done as a... It wasn't done to make fun of women. Exactly. Not really. Yeah. It was done as a whimsical. See, pranks should be funny and not mean-spirited. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I believe. And so I believe that's what that was. Somebody could take offense at it, but if they do, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'd ask them if they raised $4,000 for any charities recently. <laughs> yeah. So that was a question. prank that I, did that, that I really enjoyed. And also, I feel very much in touch with my feminine side. With that said, I think it was a fair prank. And the other neon pieces, there's a piece from Burning Man. That, oh, that was another prank. I forgot. There's another neon prank. <laughs> I keep forgetting. A lot of this stuff was done as a prank. In 1996, the last year that I was the operations manager for Burning Man, and I also, I designed the original neon every year for the seven years that I was on the desert, I did a new neon design for the Burning Man. And the seventh year I was there, I was getting a little tired of the event. I was very disillusioned with the event and many things happened. As a prank during the event, the main builder of the man, the carpenter who builds the man, Chris Campbell, who's a very good friend of mine, and I decided we would play a prank on everybody at the event. So we made a, a happy face smile, 
you know what the happy face smile is, right? Of course. <laughs> okay. We made a happy face smile. We put it inside the head of the man on a random timer so that it would only go on for three seconds and then it would go off for a minute or two and it would come on again. <laughs> and so all of the stoned ravers would look up and see the happy face in the man and they'd go, oh, look at that. And then it was gone. Okay. <laughs> and so my former partner with Burning Man, Larry Harvey, when he heard about the fact that there was a smiley face in the man, you know, because it was up for like five days, you know, before the burn, he insisted that Dan Miller, the raising boss of the man, take the man down. It was already standing up. Take it down and take the thing out of the head. He didn't think it was a funny prank. <laughs> Go figure. So when he took it down, my friend Chris Campbell got the head, got the neon piece back from Dan Miller. And we've had it for years. So we're putting it. It'll be in the show as well. Little known, but to the people who know it, it's a very Burning Man in-joke. Uh -huh. You should write the stories about all of them and I'm, just put them there, you know? <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to. Yeah, just link to this show. So those were the pranks. Those are the neon pranks. Mm -hmm. and, and there are other neon pieces that are just straightforward neon pieces that I made. One for a girlfriend of mine, who I still quite like, a nude in neon with a transparency image of the desert, which is where she lives in the desert in Southern California. Uh, and she's holding a sword, like a lighted neon sword. Mm -hmm. I call it Desert Frazetta. And that's a play on Frank Frazetta, who he's a very famous American artist. These incredible figures of uh, warriors. Uh, that was my gift to her. Mm -hmm. And she's going to loan it back to me for the show. And I got a bunch of other pieces. Okay, one is your exhibition, but you also mentioned that you've been doing a script for a play. Uh, I'm not actually doing the script. I'm assisting the librettist for an opera. And my friend, Richard Marriott, who's a fairly famous West Coast classical performer, a classical composer, is writing an opera, and he's composing the music for an opera based on the Suicide Club. And so I and another friend from the Suicide Club, Steve Mobia, have been helping him a lot with material. And he just secured a librettist, and she's going to write libretto for the opera. So we're, we're helping them with that. I'm very, very excited about that because I've never worked on an opera before. <laughs> so I'm getting ready to do a big event with a bunch of young collaborators for the 100th anniversary of surrealism for City Lights Books in San Francisco, which is a pretty amazing bookstore, a very famous bookstore uh, with a lot of social and cultural and political impact in the United States. They're the bookstore and, the, and they're also a publishing house and they've published Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, back in the, the 1950s, kicking off the beat generation. And they're still there, and they're still pretty amazing. I've worked with them a, a many times on events, and we've had many book readings at the store. And so now they're doing the 100th anniversary of surrealism, and uh, we'll do an event that will be disturbing, I think. Can you tell something more? Well, I can tell you what we did last time. Two years ago in 2016, City Lights, under the leadership of Peter Maravellis, who's an amazing creative juggler, uh, he does special events for City Lights, and they do these amazing events there, sometimes in the bookstore, sometimes off in other places. So Peter organized the 100-year anniversary of Dada in 2016, and this ended up being the largest single Dada celebration on the 100th birthday to you know 1916 at cafe voltaire in uh zurich is when dada was founded so 100 years later city lights books he did a, a program of 12 full days of events and nights with 
I don't know how many, 22 or 24 different groups, individuals. He had speaking engagements. He had events. And so I and my young friends, we did a cacophony-based event, even though cacophony doesn't really exist anymore. And the young groups have their own names for their groups. And they're all very, they're all very secretive because they do underground exploration stuff. So we did an event in three different weird venues where we recreated a salon in one venue, a very amazing interior space in San Francisco. And it's a private kind of underground illegal club. We did a, we had a cocktail party there and many of our friends played Dada characters and they were spewing Dada rhetoric as these people, these people had said when they were alive, supposedly, and they were dressed up in, you know, 1916 bohemian splendor or rags. That was the outside of the cocktail party there. And then they were blindfolded and walked across the street to another venue that I can't mention the name of, but it's a place where you open a door, secret door into a Victorian parlor right off the street. And you slide down a giant polished wooden slide a hundred feet into a basement Victorian drawing room. Wow. And they were blindfolded until they came to the tunnel. They take their blindfold off, go down the tunnel. And at the end of the tunnel, they run into two arguing figures, the, the figure of Ubu Roy from uh, Alfred Jarre's play in the 1892, uh, who's this giant pig figure. You're familiar with Alfred Jarre, right? He was the main inspiration for Dada. 20 years later, when the Dada was formed uh, in Zurich and in Paris, Alfred Jarre, well, he was a playwright who wrote a play that was performed one time in Paris, and the first word in the play was merde, which is shit in French. And the audience went berserk and tore the theater apart. It's one of the most famous theatrical occurrences. The character from that play, Ubu Roy, we recreated him. He's this giant pig monster. He's like a Polish general who tried to take over the world. He was re-embodied in Donald Trump, who was elected at exactly the same time we were doing this event. The people came down this tunnel and where they ran into Ubu Roy, this giant character with the military epaulettes and this military garb, arguing with Dick Cheney, the former vice president of the United States. <laughs> you have an actor friend who plays Dick Cheney. He's really good at it. He plays evil white business guys and politicians in a lot of left wing theater here. And so he, he's an older guy. He's older than me. And he played this character. And so that's what they see that. And then they go through this drawing room. They're indoctrinated. They have to take a drink. They're blindfolded again, where we took them outside up a stairway. And this is like 80 people blindfolded. Wow. The, the logistics of blindfolding 80 people, you need to have really smart collaborators, which mm. I did. I had amazing collaborators. I'll mention one, Joshua DeLeon. He and I co-produced the event. And he's probably 34 or so. And he's just really sharp kid. Anyway, so we brought them upstairs to the street level where we had two giant trucks, big uh, closed in trucks. And we put 40 people in one truck. And they're so blindfolded, remember. We put 40 people in one truck, 40 people in the other truck. And then we drove them to the last venue. While they're being driven there, they're still blindfolded. They can't see anything. We had music playing. We had different smells. There were live humans in the middle of all these blindfolded people having sex. So the people in the truck couldn't see them, but they could hear them and smell them. So then they got to the final location, which was a, a big warehouse that I and many of my friends used to have before the rich billionaires threw us out of it a little while ago, which is what's been happening here in San Francisco. We had this wonderful warehouse and we did the final event there where we declared that we had film, we had live performance and participation of the audience. And we made a giant dummy of Ubu Roy, who's this big fat character. And he has a conical head. 
And out of his right neck, we had a giant head. And the head was big, like three times bigger than my head. We had a head of Donald Trump. And we had a head of Hillary Clinton right there. Then during this theater performance piece, Alfred Jarre, the character, we, my friend Joshi was playing the character Alfred Jarre, who's a playwright, takes out. And Alfred Jarre was well known for shooting pistols in Paris. He was actually infamous for that. So Jarre, being played by my friend Joshu, takes out a shotgun, a real shotgun, with a blank charge in it, and shoots the head of Donald Trump, which has an explosive charge in it, and it blows up. And then he shoots the head of Hillary Clinton, which also blows up. And then the five or six characters, most of them women, dressed up in painted gold, came out, and they were dressed as robots. And robots were a big deal in the Dada era. You know, the futurists and the Dadaists both were interested in, in robotics. And so they came out as robotic characters using designs from 1916, from the Dada era, from theater pieces that some of the Dada performers did. So they recreated these costumes and they came out and they declared that the end of the century of Dada had come. So the century of Dada, which was 1916 through 2016, was done. And the beginning of the century of the robots had begun. <laughs> and so that was the end of the piece. And so that's the last theater piece that I did. That was two years ago. Um, and we're going to do another one for the Surrealist. I don't usually do big events anymore because I used to do a lot of big events and they're just not fun for me. This one was really fun because none of my collaborators flaked out. <laughs> they all did what they said they're going to do. They were great. They were wonderful working with them. Most of the people I worked with were between 25 and 40. And uh, there were 50 people to create the event and 80 people who were the guests. That's the kind of thing, it's very elaborate. Usually the stuff that I work on and, and worked on in the past is much smaller scale mm -hmm. than that. The last year I, I worked uh, operations and infrastructure for Burning Man was 1996, and we had 10,000 people. And I thought that was almost eight or 9,000 people too many to do an intimate type event, which I much prefer. That was one of the many reasons I left Burning Man. It was growing too big and we weren't treating the desert very well, honestly, and things like that. So I'm doing that. I'm very excited about the Surrealist gig, and uh, we'll be working on that for the next six months. But I'm also doing a one-man show, so I've got those are both happening. I'm going to be very busy. You are keeping yourself really busy. <laughs> and I have a job, and I have a business, and I have a 13-year-old son. And you also have a book. I do have a book uh, that's finished, though, thankfully. Can you tell a bit more about it? Well, the book that I'm talking about is a book that we published in 2013. It's called Tales of the San Francisco Cacophony Society. So it's a big, fat book. covers the history of the Cacophony Society and some suicide clubs. So that book was published in hardback. It sold out completely about two years ago, and our publishers have just sent it off to the printer to make a paperback edition of the book, which will be available this summer. So I'm very excited about that. I'm working on two or three other writing projects. It will probably take several years to finish. One of them will maybe be a book. I don't know. I've published two books. Mm -hmm. The first book I published was a very sh slender volume of fiction that was based on bridges. And that was published in 2009. Can you tell a bit more about it? It's called The Space Between. And there are three fictional stories, and one non-fiction recounting of an adventure that I had on the Golden Gate Bridge. And the three fictional stories, each one is based on different bridges that I'm familiar with and dreams that I had about the bridges and historical background of my personal friends. And I, it's all fictionalized, but I use 
my friends as characters and change them around a little bit and myself kind of as a character. Some of the incidents that are recounted were things that did happen to me as a child or as an adult. One of them called an occurrence at Oakland Bay Bridge. That story was about dreams that I had about leaping to my death off the bridge, which I've had a few dreams like that. And so I made a story out of it. Another story is from a childhood thing where we used to climb this bridge in the little town that I grew up in when I was old. And I made a ghost story about that. The other one is about climbing the Golden Gate Bridge. It's also a ghost story. And there's one scene in the the first story. There's one scene. It's called uh, Lime Point. And Lime Point is a cliff right at the Golden Gate Bridge, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. In the story, I'm an urban climber who's climbed up to the top of the bridge at dawn. And before dawn, I'm sleeping in the top of the bridge, which I've done many, many times. But I'm sleeping there in the story. And I start having a dream. The dream is of, because the Golden Gate Bridge is a suicide point. Well over a thousand people have committed suicide there. And so in, in my dream that I'm having in the story, waterlogged corpses are climbing up inside the bridge and they're ladders. There's a multi-dimensional many shafts making a honeycomb to form the inside of the tower. So I'm dreaming of these waterlogged corpses climbing up inside of the tower. And then I wake up mm-hmm. and then something happens. I'm not going to tell you, though. Mm. <laughs> Is it going to be republished? Maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, possibly. Looking I don't forward know yet, to it. I might put it online. Mm-hmm. So those are the creative projects that I'm working on now. And none of them make any money, so oh, I have to have a day job. Yeah, there is this curious relationship between you and money, right? Yeah, I, I guess. I've seen it spoil almost everything in my life, so I'm very wary of it. Would you call yourself an anarchist? That term is very misunderstood. Like, it's probably one of the most misunderstood terms, certainly in my country. But of course, we're all morons over here and we don't really read or anything. So why would anybody understand a definition of a word like that? The typical image of an anarchist in the United States is of uh, some bomb-throwing, grubby Eastern European, sorry. Uh, You know, that's the image here for most people. And that's not what an anarchist is at all in my mind. There are many different types of anarchism. There's just like five or six I could think of at the top of my head. Uh, And I don't adhere to most of them. Most of the philosophies around anarchism are just as dumb as in capitalism, multitudinous forms, or socialism. And state socialism has proven to be a dismal failure in the 20th century, unfortunately, because it's a great idea. But you live in Eastern Europe, so I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> like, we people in the United it. States now, young people think socialism is a great idea. And I'm like, you know, not so much. You know, you need to read your history. Talk to some fucking people from Poland and from Romania and from Ukraine before you decide that. I've seen public commentators in this country, young public commentators, comparing the Russian state to the American empire. And they're both dismal. Okay, They're both terrible. But they will say things like, well, Russia built this giant empire and this huge industrial society without oppressing anybody. <laughs> of, yes, course. of course. That's what they're saying. That's what <laughs> leftists in this country are saying now. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Mm. And I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? You can debate which is worse, Soviet imperialism or American capitalist imperialism. You can debate which is worse. The Soviets didn't have as much power as we did, but they're much more brutal in larger numbers. The gulags, fucking how many people? They put 20 million people in the gulags or 10 million. I mean, it's absurd. And then this is the nature of a political discourse in the United States right now. It's very disturbing because normally I would want to align with the left for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. 
but they're out of their fucking minds. And so, yeah, I guess I'm an anarchist. Sure. I'm a, a free form. I'm not an anarcho-libertarian at all. I, I completely got rid of libertarianism about 10 years ago when I realized it's a form that doesn't work very well. And in my anarchism, it's just, it's very personal. And I just, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I want to do the right thing because I thought about it and I've chosen to do the right thing, which most of the time coincides with other people because I'm not unreasonable. And I don't want to tell anybody what to do. I don't want to be told what to do by anybody. And I don't want to tell anybody what to do. I don't feel like I should have to tell anybody what to do. I feel like people should be raised to be adults with a broad spectrum of information and to be open to new things. And maybe humanity is not there yet, but I think that you have to strive for that. I think you have to try. Say, sure, I'm an anarchist. You know, I just don't. With that said, I have to live in the real world. The real world here includes getting money. There's no way around it. If you don't get money, you'll basically die. You'll get kicked to the curb and you'll be scorned and people won't feel sorry for you because you're a bum. You know, and that's really awful, but that's just how the world is. So whenever I'm able to be an anarchist, which is a lot of the time, I am. And so the original Burning Man, Cacophony Society, Suicide Club, we didn't identify ideologically. You have to understand, see, Eastern Europeans, the French in particular, and I'm generalizing, but Czechs and Poles, much more intellectual and much more well-read than Americans in general. So you studied theory more than we have and know a little bit more about cultural issues than most Americans do. So in America, a lot of the stuff that we do is not based in an intellectual, at least that I've been involved, wasn't based in an intellectual construct that much to start. One exception would be the Suicide Club, which tipped the hat to Dadaism. But even with that said, it was initiated by Gary Warren, David Warren, and Adrian Burke to offer a way for the people who are involved in the group to be free, to create freely. And they tried to set up a mechanism that would do that. But that's the only thing I've been involved in where it really had a kind of a philosophical precept that was important at the outset. Burning Man, the philosophical precepts for Burning Man came later. There was nothing in the beginning. It was like, hey, let's have a big party and burn a thing and we'll all get drunk and run around and drop acid you know, or whatever. That's kind of what it was. And even on, on Baker Beach, it wasn't even that. It was, just, it was what's called the grasser here, which is a big party, people drinking, and then we have a fire. Instead of it being a regular bonfire, it was a figure of a man. And the archetypal image of that figure of a man is very powerful. When people see a human figure on fire, it sets off something in their head that goes back to the lizard brain from 100,000, 200,000 years ago. It's very powerful archetype. One of my partners realized that, and that was his revelation. And that's one of the reasons the event grew so much, because that's a very powerful image. Mm -hmm. Later, you know, when the Cacophony Society became involved in Burning Man, that's when a lot of the theatrics and the pranking and the culture joined this party. Okay, that's when the, the, this underground subculture that we had devised along with our friends and which came from earlier subcultures in San Francisco evolved into what we were doing, which then evolved or some might say devolved into what Burning Man is now. So nothing simple. People look for simple answers to everything. Like, are you an anarchist? I mean, I'm not saying you. That's a good question. But there's no simple answer to that. First, you have to understand that your definitions that you're using are the same, okay? And with things like that, you know, like looking at how a thing like Burning Man, which everybody now knows about, has come to be into its existence, there's nothing simple about it. You know, there wasn't one guy. Iconography in America tends to honor the lone man, the lone genius, the lone 
originator, you know, Howard Rourke, determined architect who will not change his vision, even if they put him in prison, right? That's a very strong American archetype. It comes from the Westerns, John Wayne and the gun, and you're out there and you're, you're a man alone, and, and you have your own sense of reality, and it, it's stronger than the world. Detective fiction, Maltese Falcon, and uh, Dashiell Hammett's writings, uh, Sam Spade, very important part of American iconography. There's something really great about that. Being an individual is super important, you know, having an individual idea. But what they don't talk about is how you're an individual in the middle of a fuck ton of other individuals that you have to deal with, right? So you have to be very fluid. You can still be an individual and be free in yourself, but you have to be fluid. And that's the part that the Americans aren't taught, <laughs> okay? So what you end up with, everybody thinks, oh, Steve Jobs. Out of his brain left Apple Computer and all this. That there there's an army of people behind him. Okay, I know some of them who were in Apple in the fucking beginning. Who Steve Jobs kicked to the curb and took their ideas. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? Hmm. Sure. Steve Jobs was a prick. He was an asshole, but he was a guy who took this giant thing they were all working on, including Steve Wozniak, who was the actual engineer. Uh, Daniel Kotke, who was with them in the beginning, who got kicked out early took all his ideas and then they're all, they're my ideas, right? So with Burning Man or with any other thing like that, so there's always like one guy, it's never a woman, it's very rarely a woman, but hopefully that will change. And it's like, you stand on the bluff, looking out over the world and you take your rib out and you cast it out there and there, this giant idea <laughs> comes to fruition. That's the American iconography. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Totally. It's total bullshit. It's complete fucking bullshit. That's not how Burning Man started. Not how Apple computer started. It's not usually not how anything started, you know, and yes, there are individuals who are super strong and usually they're assholes. <laughs> usually they're real monsters or sociopaths because that's what it takes to take the collective energy of hundreds of people and claim it all as your own. I don't do that. I didn't fucking found Burning Man. There were a hundred people involved and I try to cite them whenever I can. And it's it, sometimes it's difficult to get all the names in, but I try to name people who I feel were important to what was happening. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of good ideas. Sure. I was part of it and an important part. I don't deny that. I have my attachment to that. But there were many, many people. And that's how anything really big and important has started. Soviet Union was founded by this whole entire maelstrom of intellectuals, you know, and then the most brutal, monstrous fucks took it over. First Lenin and Trotsky and then uh, Stalin. These guys were monsters. One of the things that Lenin said that I really like, even though he was a monster, was that you can never trust the liberals. They'll stab you in the back every time. I mean, I'm paraphrasing him. But uh, Nikolai Lenin, that was one of his famous ideas. But, but then again, you know, I don't think that a functioning real human who's been raised to be free person needs somebody to tell them what to do. You know, and, and it's difficult because most people are raised to hate other people, other groups of people. Most people are raised with really incredibly monstrous belief systems, religious belief systems, or political belief systems that are intolerant in so many ways. So could anarchism be implemented on a large scale? Probably not. But in a, in a small scale, it can, which is where the temporary autonomous zone comes in, which is something I really like. There were two, th two things that came to a confluence with uh, what we were doing with Cacophony Society and with Burning Man. And one was called the Zone Trip, which came from Eastern Europe, of all places, came from Poland. Carrie Galbraith, the co-author of my book, who died very tragically a year ago. She taught in Poland. She taught in Venice. She had a, a year up on a Fulbright scholarship to teach. And she loved a movie called Stalker, which is produced and directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. 
Uh, he's Russian. And so she's very impressed by his movie. And then she read Strugatsky Brothers' novel. And she read a bunch of other stuff of theirs and watched all of, all of Tarkovsky's five-hour-long, incredibly slow-moving movies. And she was deeply touched by them, aesthetically. And so she came up with the idea of the zone trip, which was a cacophony concept where you would gather together to go into a place we called the zone. And the idea was uh, what I would call metaphysical or even pataphysical tourism, because the group would agree that they were going to go somewhere that was an alien environment. They were choosing it to be an alien environment. The first zone trip that we did was to Los Angeles, which is an alien environment, if you've ever been there. Okay, it's a very strange place. People go there for mundane and boring reasons. We went there to go into the zone. There were eight of us, uh, we were in two vehicles, we slept all slept in the same hotel room on the floor, and we basically stayed awake for three days straight. And anything anybody wanted to do, we would go do it. Anything. So I wanted to go climb the Hollywood letter. They're big. They're like 40 feet tall. So I always wanted to go there and climb them. So we went there and climbed them. Another person had heard about this neighborhood that had been completely abandoned because it was right next to the airport, LAX, and the planes would fly so close over the houses that the houses were vibrating. The airport had to buy the houses, and then they closed the neighborhood down. So we wanted to go there and have the planes fly overhead. So we did that. Um, another woman remembered from her childhood getting date shakes. And it was out in a town outside of L.A. And so we drove all the way out to this place, and we stopped at weird places along the way. There are these giant dinosaurs along the highway. We stopped there. And we, we stopped anywhere we wanted to. There was no agenda. There was no itinerary at all. Zero. We went to the Bradbury building in downtown LA, which is where the film Blade Runner was shot. Big parts of the Blade Runner was shot. And the million dollar movie building was also in Blade Runner. And that was an abandoned building at the time. We snuck into the abandoned million dollar movie building. So this was all in a three day period. It was incredible. It was one of the most incredible things ever done. And it was in Los Angeles. I mean, who knew, right? Los Angeles could be so alien, right? Mm. It was, and also we'd be driving there. It was always out of San Francisco. Zone trip meant that we were going away from our safe place in san francisco and we would stop somewhere where we just knew it was the right place and we didn't pick it ahead of time we'd be driving somewhere and we would see something go oh that's the entryway to the zone so in the first trip to la we were driving down the freeway and we looked over and we saw a 200 foot tall clown with a giant lollipop <laughs> it was a sign for an amusement park called great america and we said that's the entryway to the zone and it was three o'clock in the morning and we pulled over next to this giant clown, a massive clown. And Carrie drew a line in the dirt and we all stepped across it at once into the zone. And when you stepped into that zone, if, the, if you've seen the movie Stalker, you go into the zone and anything can happen. It's an alien environment with physics. It's an alien environment with metaphysics. You could die. I mean, you could have a revelation. You could come out a millionaire. You, know, you just didn't know it was going to happen. So. The idea and the concept that she came up with was brilliant, and it helped us to look at other places with a completely new set of eyes. The first year that we took Burning Man to the desert was the Cacophony Society zone trip number four, bad day at Black Rock, what we called it, and that was the first zone trip to the desert. So our whole concept was a metaphysical concept from the beginning, which was formed from our organization and our culture that was already extant, that already was there but led by a woman who had a particularly good idea. And that's how that came about. Very few people know this. I've written about it. It's in some of the histories, but 
the Burning Man Corporation doesn't really care about stuff like that too much. They're more interested in, you know, what they're doing now, which I guess they should be. With that said, that was a very important thing. And there's another very important thing that happened around the same time. We ran into the writings of a fellow named Hakim Bey. His actual, his English given name, he's an Englishman, was Peter Lamborn Wilson. And he became a Sufi dervish or some fucking thing. I don't know. Anyway, he started writing philosophy. And he wrote a book called Taz, T-A-Z, Temporary Autonomous Zone. And it was a short book. It was only about 120 pages. We all read that in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And we realized this guy was writing about a whole philosophy that he didn't really do. Okay, He was thinking about it, but we were doing it. And we're like, my God, this is he's describing what we're doing. And his concept, which was fucking brilliant, and this is separate from Carrie's, they dovetail together, but his concept was in society, it's always going to be a controlled society, no matter what it is, communist, capitalist, socialist, whatever. It's going to be a controlled society. So the only way that people can be free is temporarily and collectively or together. So you make a plan with people without the state knowing or the businesses knowing or anything. You make a plan. You pick a place that nobody cares about. They're not going to know about. It'll take a while before they figure out what you're doing. You go to this place with all your people that you've gathered together. And you do whatever the fuck you want for as long as you can until you have to run away before the state crushes you. And that's what a temporary autonomous zone is. I believe in those strongly. Any kind of government you're going to be in, they're going to be oppressive. If it's a corporate oligarchy, which is what my country is becoming right now, they're going to be oppressive as hell. So you need to find ways to not let them know what you're doing, which is getting more difficult, and gather together with people of a like mind and go to a place that you choose, it could be in a public place. It could be for an hour. Temporary autonomous zone could be for an hour. It could be where you take over a mall with people in weird costumes. Before the security figures out what's going on, you play a game. We've done that many times. If you play a game in costumes in a mall or in a giant commercial area, there's cameras everywhere. So you have to be aware of them, but you can play your game. You can have your activity. You can be free in that space by doing exactly what the fuck you want for a short period of time until you have to run away when the security people show up. And I mean run away, I mean it figuratively. Yeah. You know, you don't necessarily run away. They kick you out or you get arrested or you leave voluntarily. But you can do that. But you have to think about it. When I, cho I chose the location for Burning Man in the Black Rock Desert, Kevin Evans, who's the other co-author of my book, had the idea to invite Burning Man to the desert because he and I were planning a cacophony event, a free event, a zone trip to the desert, to the Black Rock Desert, because we both knew that area. And we've been planning it for several months. And then at the same time, we were helping with the Burning Man on Baker Beach, which was basically just a big part, people drinking, burnt, and a bonfire. And he had the idea, let's invite them to the desert, because we've both been there. And I said, that's great. So I chose the location way off-road. It was off-road. 12 miles off any road and in the middle of no, one of the most remote places in the United States of America. And we picked that place and we went there with 70 people and we did whatever the fuck we wanted for four days. And it was great. And then one cop drove out because people in town, we, we went through this little teeny town called Gerlach and there were, there were all these weirdos and people wearing goofy costumes and homosexuals and uh, people in stupid you know hats and so they thought we were Satanists because they were rural folk and they didn't know, they didn't know, going out to the desert to do some kind of horrible rite. A couple of them came out to see us 
And they realized we had guns having shooting events. And they're like, oh, those asshole hippies have guns. So maybe they're okay. And this created a dialogue because I and a couple of other people in the group had grown up in rural areas. We'd grown up around guns and we were not afraid of them. And we knew rural people because we, and we, we didn't patronize them. Mm-hmm. We were completely direct with them. So we became very good friends with many people in the small town, including the gas station owner, the restaurant owner, and the propane company. And this is how Burning Man started. So if we'd gone anywhere else, they would have shut us down. The authorities would have shut us down. They wouldn't have let it happen. But I chose the place off the desert. And it was at the confluence of three counties. So the jurisdiction was unclear. And it would take law enforcement two hours from one county and four hours from another county to drive out where we were. I can't tell you how remote. It's like Siberia. Okay, that's the only thing I could think of. This is how remote this place is. So, And there's a little town here and a, a ranch over here. But we chose the place specifically so that the authorities wouldn't care what we were doing or it would take them too long to get to us and shut the party down. And it worked brilliantly. It worked so well that it kept going every year. And by the time we've been there three or four years, the local people in the small town realized people who own businesses, the bars, they were, I love this town because there was 150 people in the town, no churches and five bars. <laughs> that was the town of Gerlach, right? So it was our kind of town. And so we became friendly with the people they accepted us, even though we were weird, in part because we were armed. That's America. You can't communicate intellectually a lot of the time. Not that people are stupid. They're not. We just don't learn certain things here. We're not taught certain things here. We don't talk about class in this country ever. And we have a major class war going on right now. And I'm not a Marxist at all. I think socialism's a, d- a dead end. But with that said, we have to change something dramatically here or it's going to become very violent and horrifying because uh, the 1% is taking all of the wealth right now and they're fucking everybody else over. That's what's happening. And it's not good. So I think anarchism is great. We need more anarchism now. We need a lot of anarchism and a lot of uh, temporary autonomous zones. I think everybody should do them. This is a thread that goes through, I think, all of the stories that you just told us. It's about dealing with uncertainty. Because you mentioned also that people are looking for clear boundaries from here to here. I can anticipate what's going to happen. Action, reaction, status quo. You seem to be really comfortable in the other part. I don't see clear boundaries anywhere. Boundaries change depending on who has power almost entirely. If the people in power set certain boundaries and they give as a gift the gift of security to the workers, that's an exchange that takes place. And throughout history, there have been periods of time where that happened. But then they can take it away anytime, which they're doing right now in this country. The rich have broken that bond of offering security, some security in a world where security really doesn't exist to people in exchange for the people just continuing to work. That's fucked up here now, not happening. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But if you were talking to a young person, I mean, younger than us, <laughs> who would be trying to cross that bridge, how should they go about it? There's no easy answer to that. Uh, the first thing I would suggest, and I'm not a fucking philosopher, prophet or anything like that. That's a bunch of baloney. The older I get, the less I know. But with that said, I would suggest that they find other people that want to be free that has to be their driving force mm-hmm. that want to be free and understand that in order to be free, you have to give up some security, if not all security. You need to find those people. And when you find them, you're stronger as a group. 
that agrees on certain things. And you don't have to agree on everything. As a matter of fact, if you agree on everything, you're probably a cult. You just put another boundary around you. Right. Yeah. So, and then you need to find those people and then work with them. You need to read history. You need to find out how other groups have survived, how other creative cabals have existed in the past. The one thing I, I do talk to with kids when I'm talking to them, whenever it comes up, and I'm not, I'm not the old guy saying, hey, this is how you do it. You do yeah, it this yeah. way. That's such <laughs> bullshit. It's such bullshit. I don't know how to do it. I mean, it worked for me, kind of, but I'm like 60 years old. I don't have a pot to piss in. I mean, I've got health insurance, thank God, but I don't have any money, right? So maybe I'm a moron. <laughs> maybe I should have gone for security and not gone for freedom. I mean, I'll tell you more about that in 10 years. With that said, if they want to have that freedom, there's a price for it. And then that price is usually almost always security. What scares you? Wow. That's a really good guy. I haven't thought about that one in a while. I'm not afraid of the government. Not really. I'm wary of the government. I'm very wary of industry, of business. I'm very wary of public discourse that's created and largely by advertising agencies. I'm very wary of those things. I'm not afraid of them. Maybe it's because I think I understand what they are. I'm afraid of people that I work with or know going insane, mm-hmm. losing their mind. And I've seen it happen once or twice. And it's, it's very unpleasant. People who are strong warriors, strong creative people who, for some reason, genetically or because of so much pressure in their life, literally lose their mind. That's very frightening. Have you ever known an insane person? In the Netherlands, when people have a psychotic attack, they are not being sent directly to the mental hospital, but they are going to a safe house. Right. They stay there for like three months. Uh-huh. And if they manage to get back okay they go back to their lives and if not they move to the hospital and i've been doing a project for this safe house wow um, that's yeah. really awesome that's really awesome that's pretty cool yeah so basically we were wow. uh, we knew that they had some yoga exercises that were quite successful but because of the budget cuts they chopped them off and we started thinking that actually the breathing exercises is something that can really help these people so these people have their separate rooms where they can stay during the night but during the day they have to be together and this is basically for the maniacal people not to go crazy and do something stupid and for the depressive people is to just get out of the bed so they are not allowed to stay in their rooms you got to move them around yeah exactly mix Uh, with other people and then you have like three different rooms one is an isolation room so like if people don't commit to the treatment they stay there i locked myself there and it was insane I was I was going nuts. It was yeah. really scary because you've got doors like to a safe. There are no corners, like everything is round. Right. There's nothing that, that you can hold on to. There is a bed, but everything's like, so you don't kill yourself, basically. And, right. So and, there are no hard edges that you can hit your head on or you can exactly. run into. Or... And then there was another room, which was more like a regular room, which was for the people who committed to the treatment but they were not ready to join the group and they were staying in this room for like hour and a half and then they would leave and spend one hour with the group and they would go back to this room and there was a third room and we were designing for this third room which was called the comfort room and basically the idea there was that if someone is overwhelmed by being within a group they can go to this room for one hour and they can just chill out there good that's great uh, but but the chill out was like a dvd with private ryan uh, private Ryan. Yeah, private it, was, Ryan. it was actually. The, the, That's a little intense for crazy people. I, I think mean. so. I was like so shocked that it was there, but it was. And, and they only watched the opening scene, right? 
God, that's a horrifying scene. It yeah. is. <laughs> Not the best choice, I yeah. would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there was like a shooting game. And I think that was it. So what we did, okay. we, we designed uh, a lamp. So we designed the prototype for the lamp. They built the lamp later on. But the idea was that it would be one meter tall. And it had lights mm-hmm. that would switch on and off, like going up and down. Okay, yeah. And basically the idea was that the lamp shows you how to breathe in a relaxed way. Imagine a ladder of light, a LED display going up and right. down. One of my students designed a pillow that you put on your belly, okay. which collects the information about your breathing pattern from the movement of your belly and just sends wow, it to yeah. the... Exercise. Yeah. Wow. But then what happened, and it was fascinating, I was doing interviews, I was spending days in this uh, safe house. And for example, there was this one guy and he was like super intelligent. I would never suspect him to be insane in any way, except for the fact <laughs> that he was walking an invisible dog while talking to me. When I asked him, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm walking a dog. Why are you asking me that? I was like, okay. There's right. like, a dog here, duh. Duh, yeah. <laughs> But then, then again, what happened uh, when I was doing the tests of the lamp, so like evaluation, whether the lamp is working, I got this lady and basically it was the story that she locked herself in her room. She didn't want to talk to me. We had to beg her to get out of the room and all this stuff. And then we gave her the whole solution, which we tested on healthy people and it worked perfect. She put the pillow on the belly and within like 30 seconds or one minute, she told me, I don't like it. So I said, like, okay, like, can you explain? Okay. Yeah, can you explain to me why you don't like it? And she said, like, no, I just don't like it. So I spent about an hour sitting with her nurse, and we we're trying to figure out what happened. And what we realized was that people with mental problems they fail a lot in their lives. Yeah. And what she was trying to do, she was trying to synchronize with the lamp, but the lamp needed some time to get the rhythm going. So she didn't understand that she should follow the lamp, rather she was trying to control the lamp with her breathing. Oh, okay. Oh. Uh-huh. So it didn't work, of course. Did you tell her that? Did she understand that when you told her that? I don't know. I don't think so. But it was a design flow. We designed it in the wrong way. Interesting. Interesting. So basically what we did, we redesigned the whole algorithm for it. Right. So basically the idea was that when you start breathing with a lamp, the lamp follows you. If you want to hyperventilate, it goes up and down, It'll up and down. Up. If you, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, If you hold your breath, it just goes completely quiet, all lights oh, off. God. That's great. But only after the breathing gets synchronized, so people try it out and then they relax, only then it takes slowly over and it pushes you to breathe in the in right way. Yes. So it's straight up biofeedback, direct biofeedback. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I'm so glad you're working with these people. They need all the help they can get. Oh, definitely. Yeah. My sister, my older sister was mentally ill, extremely mentally ill. She had uh, schizophrenia in and out of institutions her entire life. She died uh, about two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 She had a really difficult life, mm-hmm. very difficult life. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't but, imagine. Uh, so I, I'm, familiar, I'm familiar with that. As, as a child, I watched her go insane. Maybe that's why I'm afraid of people going insane. Yeah, yeah. So I ask an opposite question. What inspires you? Well, a bunch of things. Literature, film, particularly certain types of literature and film. I like adventure and extreme uh, stories, horror stories, fantastic stories. I think that in literature going through history, the stories that survive from uh, Greek mythos on are the fantastic stories. They're the ones that people identify with more. You can have a brilliant writer 
a wonderful writer who writes about everyday occurrences and normal people in normal circumstances and their dismal lives or their wonderful lives or whatever. I have zero interest in that. None. I, I like extreme situations and how people react to them. And that's usually adventure or terror or uh, fantasy. Iliad and the Odyssey were fantasy stories made up by God knows who. I mean, Homer, maybe, but he probably took them from earlier stories. And there's something very archetypal about these stories, which predicates, it uh, suggests rather, that Homer, whoever Homer was, got these stories from handed down over time, and then he incorporated them into a more formal form. So I think those, those are very influential to me, and in film as well, American film and European film, very much, and in some Asian film, Akira Kurosawa is a major influence. I'm inspired by other people, like a lot. I bounce off of people. I'm very collaborative. All of my projects, with the exception of some photography and some neon work, is collaborative. And so young people, I fucking love them because they they're just don't know any better. They'll just do stuff. <laughs> they don't know any better, right? They'll just go and do it. And I think that's awesome because they're not afraid. Mm. They haven't become afraid yet. They want to try to have an idea. Let's go do this idea. And so as an old guy, kid will have an idea. And instead of saying, wow, we did that same thing 30 years ago, which I could say that, right? Because we probably did it. I don't say that. I go, wow, that's a great idea. Let's try it out. <laughs> and then they do the event or they do the idea. And it always turns out to be very different from whatever I might have been involved in before. There are similar threads. I mean, there's only four games. If you're playing a game, there's hide and seek. There's capture the flag. There, there aren't very many games. Every game that you can think of, action game out running around, is predicated on very small number of actual games. But it's the variations that you have that make them different, that make them new, that make them something original. But with that said, every new generation that does something does it in their own way that's different from the earlier generations. That's amazing to me. When I was 18 and I started in a suicide club, I thought we were the first people to ever do this stuff. I thought, wow, nobody's ever snuck into the Golden Gate Bridge and climbed it. Nobody's ever gone into sewer tunnels. But, you know, as I got older, I realized, oh, it's been done a lot. But the way we did it, we had our own flavor. We had our own way of doing it. So um, the only reason to, like, claim ownership over something is to get power from it in some way. You know, I mean, I've been involved in a lot of things. I'm extremely lucky to have been involved in these things. And some of it was due to my own energy and efforts and ideas, but most of it is for collaboration. I'm totally inspired by other people, you know, and the people my age that I still know, many of them have, because of different reasons, they've stopped, they got married, they slowed down, they had a family, they're retired. Some of them are still actively creative, others aren't. And I have no judgment, no judgment. Life is different for everybody. But then the younger generation who are in their 40s and 50s now that I ran around with later, they're all settling down now. The generation before that who are in their 30s, they're still in the middle of their most creative years. And the kids in the 20s are just starting. So I love all of them. And they, they all inspire me. Environments inspire me. I love urban exploration. And if you get into urban exploration, there's a whole world. There's like Eskimos in snow, right? Eskimos have... 50 or 80 different names for snow well there's all sorts of different types of urban exploration and it, unless you're in the field you wouldn't know it right you just think oh they're sneaking into places right there's a uh, live infrastructure exploration which means going into a a factory or a bridge that's in use very dangerous to do that 
There's abandoned building exploration where the buildings have been taken back by nature, which is my personal favorite. I love that. I'm very inspired by that because you see how mankind, how humans have made these amazing structures, astonishing, unbelievably intricate, beautiful, utilitarian, magnificent. And they walk away from it and nature just takes them back. Nature takes them back almost immediately from nature's point of view. But from our point of view, it takes a lifetime sometimes for a concrete factory to be completely covered by growth. But I've seen that. And the synthesis between nature, the creations of mankind in architectural form, and the idea of transgressive exploration, going someplace that, why would you go there? There's no reason to be there. I like things where there's no reason. I like to do things there's no reason to do. Well, you have to have a reason to do everything, right? And I love these buildings. And my friend Julia Solis, who's one of the great urban explorers, wrote the book on uh, underground New York. Dear friend, I go on her cruise a lot whenever I can. You know, she's in Detroit now and was in New York for years. At least once a year, maybe twice a year, I'll go on one of her expeditions. And we have a whole thing where we'll go to some giant abandoned factory in France or in Germany or in the United States or wherever. And uh, we'll explore the building. It's a big complex. And then she and her boyfriend, Tom, and most of the other urban explorers in her group are very good photographers. They're excellent photographers. They're really good. They really know what they're doing. I gave up photography years ago. I was never that good at it. I got a couple of good shots, but I kind of gave it up. But what I do is I go in with them and we explore the building and that takes a couple hours, maybe three hours. And then they start setting up to do their photos, which takes another four hours. So I go somewhere, I find a really nice, comfortable place in the building and take a nap. <laughs> and then she knows to come look for me when they're ready to go. She'll come and wake me up and I'll be, I've been dreaming. And I'm inspired by dreams a lot. And the dreams that I'm having are usually tied somehow to the exploration or the idea of exploration. And so the dream and the reality come together in a synesthesia, which is a combining of different genres. They come together in a synesthesia that's really compelling. It's beautiful. It's, I can't even describe it. It's an amazing thing. And I love that more than anything. So I love abandoned buildings. And watching the young kids, because I go mostly with youngsters now, like in the 20s and 30s to go exploring, watching them just make these discoveries. You know, And I don't have to tell them what they're looking at. I don't tell them anything. I just go along. I help carry things. If we're going to do something where I know maybe somebody's going to get hurt, I'll say something. But aside from that, I don't say shit. I just go along for the adventure. And I watch them, how they figure out what they're doing and how they go through the environment. And some of them know more than I do. It's amazing. They just have a natural intuition for it. I love that. It just makes me feel so alive. And that's what the whole Cacophony Society is doing. That's what that, those groups were about. They were about trying to get some kind of a temporary format that would encourage people to collaborate together and create something together that was new that in the suicide club case challenged their fears a lot of the time to do something they were afraid of. I told you the naked cable car story already, I think, right? I think that so. was my fear. Silly thing, right? Who would be afraid of getting naked on a cable car? I was terrified of it, mortified, but I did it. And then there was no longer a fear. I had it crumbled like it blew away in the wind. And I've seen other people do that. And that's when you become more as a person that's where you learn that's where you grow as a person is those periods of time where you challenge your fears and you vanquish them 
what you described, the story that you told us about this event that you did three years ago for the bookshop with transporting for people. For the, da- the Dara Festival. Yeah, yeah exactly. The Dara. You get inspired and then you come together with a group of people and then you start inventing all this crazy stuff. Yes. How does this work? How do you go about it? It's always an involved and messy process. There's a balance between control and between complete freedom when you're doing an event yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to poke. Control, and I'll give you this, control is absolutely mandatory for one reason, and that's safety. Sure. So no one gets hurt. And it's never guaranteed. There's no guarantee. Mm-hmm. When you take risks, people can get hurt. Stuff can go wrong. I've seen it happen. But you can take the best precautions that you can based on the knowledge that you have and the information of the environment that you're working in. And you make the best decisions that you can. For instance, taking people blindfolded, if you're not super careful, they're blindfolded. They don't, they're like a baby. They'll walk off a cliff. They'll walk right into a wall. They'll cut their neck in a door. So the, your collaborators have to be 100% hyper aware. And these are things you talk about in planning. You talk about how do we not hurt anybody? You put 40 people holding hands in a line and you're walking them along. And we did that with about five people. It makes you hyper aware of your environment. It makes you really pay attention to the world and what's going on around you because you have to. There's a lot invested in it. And you have to walk them along. We went up stairways with them. You have to literally watch where they're taking the steps. You have to stay there. You know, we would position one person at the beginning of the stairway and you tell the blind person, you're going to step up onto an upper step and there's a railing here that you can hold on to. They go up the stairs and there's another person at the top that says, you're at the top of the stairs. Now you're going to walk out on a flat and you have to plan this stuff out. The logistics, the mechanics of doing these events, especially with blindfolded people or that are dangerous events, are super important. It takes time to plan them out. And you can make mistakes. You can forget things. Sometimes you're lucky. If you forget something important, you're usually lucky and nobody gets hurt, but they could get hurt. So that's paramount. The freedom comes in creating the space where then people can have a complete freedom of imagination and sometimes physical freedom. Like Burning Man was perfect because the Black Rock Desert, we just got people there. There's a general agreement that people had because of our existing culture of cooperation and anarchism, if you want to call it that, in the cacophony society, that people knew not to be idiots. You could suggest something, but you're still free. You were free to do whatever you wanted to do. And that location was perfect because you were literally free to do whatever you wanted to do. You were in the middle of nowhere. And in order to use any implements or tools, you had to have brought them with you, which we did more and more and more of. You know, We started bringing more stuff. And we'd end up building these big, stupid things that we'd burn, right? Which is a lot of fun. But there was a lot of freedom in that. There's almost almost total, close to total freedom in that. So in a smaller sense, in an in-town event, where you have people together and playing a game of some type, you have the rules for the game that they're playing, but then they're free to make their character up as they like. They're free to play the game as they like. So yeah, there's a balance there. You know, Of course, I'm not set up a situation where people just running around crazy in a, in a dangerous place and they get hurt, that's your fault for being an idiot, for not being responsible. So the sense of responsibility that you have around doing these things becomes incredibly acute. You become aware of how to set in place mechanisms so that people don't get hurt. A great example of that would be the Billboard Liberation Front, which is a group where we go out, climb up on giant freeway billboards, advertisements, and change them, which is illegal. If you're climbing up on a freeway billboard, you're probably at least 30 to 40 to 50 feet above the ground. 
if you make a mistake, you're dead. Well, you can't just bring anybody on that. You have to bring people that have been vetted, that have been tested, that know how to act in a certain way. You have to bring people who are proficient with climbing, who understand real basic safety measures around climbing, or else they'll get hurt. We did this stuff for 34 years, and not one person ever got hurt doing it. Suicide Club, many of the events we did were no drugs and no alcohol events. One reason being some of the stuff we were doing was dangerous to start with, and we didn't want anybody to get hurt. And, and this depended on each event organizer. They got to choose. If you could do an event and have all the drugs and alcohol you wanted to and do whatever, and or you can do an event with climbing the Golden Gate Bridge where you require that people coming on the event don't bring any drugs or alcohol and are focused. Because the experience that you're going to have is surreal. It's anything you get from being on drugs or alcohol. It's a lot of responsibility to do something like that. Mm -hmm. And you want to do it with people who are choosing. You don't want just some random audience. This is why I'll never be a professional event designer. I'll never do that because I want to do it with people who are choosing to do it of their own volition and not as a commercial exchange because nothing against professional event organizers. They're all, some of them are great. Some of the events are awesome. But with that said, when you charge money for something, you change the dynamic, you change the expectations. Even if people are game, even if the people with enough money to pay $1,000 to do a game that you're creating, they're buying a product from you, okay? Which, not bad, it's not a bad thing, but it's different from a whole bunch of people choosing to take an action together and to take risks together. It's a different thing. And I'm not interested in being a, a servant to people who are paying for a product. In another part of my life, I am that. I work, I get paid for, I'm basically a prostitute, you know, like everybody else who works for a living. You know, it's just a matter of getting a good street corner, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. As a sign hanger and a sign man, I put up signs for McDonald's Corporation. I put up signs for Bank of America. I put up signs for these monster corporations and they pay me. And that's a commercial exchange to me. Probably understand you have to live in the world. You have to have money. You have to have some way to make money. But the stuff that I do, I'm not interested in. It just changes it. I'd rather not do it. I'd rather read a book, frankly. Where's the space for humor in all of it? Humor? Are you kidding? Humor's everything. Oh, my God. You don't see the humor in this stuff? Of course I do. Really? <laughs> if you're not having fun doing what you're doing, if you're not enjoying yourself, interacting and playing, the whole thing is about playing. The Suicide Club, the, the idea was about playing in the urban environment as a, as a child would. And so it's a huge, important part of it. In the Billboard Liberation Front, I would say, you know, if you're not having fun doing what you're doing, the corporations that you're trying to make fun of, they win. You lose, they win, because the whole idea of life and striking out and creating stuff in opposition to or despite control, the control of corporations, the control of government, is so that you're more alive and you're more happy and you're more humorous and you're more in love. You're feeling things more. When you're creeping around at night with four or five people on a billboard, you climb up onto a building illegally and you're creeping across a rooftop and you're looking around to make sure there's no cops and you're looking around to make sure you don't fall down a, a well, you're intensely alive. It's super fun. It's scary, but it's also fun. They're not mutually exclusive. Whenever I'm working with collaborators, we're always laughing and making fun of things. You know, there's nothing that's sacred. Nothing should be sacred. Pranks, I have to tell you, prankster, okay? If you're going to be a prankster, you have to be able to take a joke. You can't get mad if somebody plays a joke on you, unless it's sadistic. And the difference between a prankster 
and a sadist is that a prankster is, is that a sadist can't take a joke. A sadist will make a prank on somebody like, ah, look at that idiot. They stepped in the bucket of poop or whatever. But if you do the same thing to them, they get mad. I'll give you an example. We had a big party. This was many years ago, back when we partied and I, I still drank a lot. And I have a dear friend, Chris Radcliffe, and we we're at a giant party at Cycleside Bike Rodeo. It's an incredible warehouse. And we got really drunk and really high. And Chris and I were mock fighting and messing with each other. And uh, I, at one point, I had him by his ankles, and I was holding him over this drop, like where he would have died if I dropped him. And then I pulled him back over. And so I passed out at a table on the outside. And uh, while I was passed out, Chris and several other friends duct taped my whole body. I had a glass of beer in my hand, and they duct taped it to my hand. And they screwed my boots to the wooden deck with screws. <laughs> then they got about 20 feet away with a water hose and a video camera. And they hose me down at dawn because we've been partying all night long. And they hose me down. I have a video of this. It's really fucking funny. It's super funny. And they hose me down. And I woke up and I'm like, and I'm like, oh, and I'm all, I'm tied up and I've got duct tape. I have no idea where I am, right? And I stand up and I, and because my feet are stuck to the deck, I fall flat on my face. And they videotaped it. These fuckers. <laughs> And so later on, we're sitting around having coffee and whiskey, and I see the camera. So I grab the camera and I pull all the video out of it because I don't want anybody to see it. Right. And I think, okay, that's great. It's done. And then three years later, at a giant event that I'm doing with my partner in Laughing Squid at a public venue in San Francisco called the Great American Music Hall with an audience, a sold out standing room only audience of 600 people, we were doing an event based on the subculture around laughing squid and the mc for the show was talking about what great guys me and scott beale were for doing laughing squid and then he showed that video of me getting <laughs> 600 to 600 people at my party and it was the funniest thing it was the best prank ever you know how i got him back years later he was getting married first time and he was in his he was like mid-40s and we had a giant bachelor party for him and we did all these different things and at one point in the bachelor party we had duct taped him in church. I can't move. And we had an, an evil clown come in, a sadomasochistic clown dressed up with a jock strap and like leather. In the, he's called Ouchie the Clown. He's a good friend of ours. He's actually a real estate salesman, but he's, a, he's an evil clown. He's an evil clown. I the thought rest these of the people time. were sad by definition, but no. This guy, he's really a clown. He's a member of a group called the Porn Clown Posse, which is this amazing group. They're a very interesting, transgressive group. He comes out with a straight razor he cuts the i'm not going to mention names because i don't want to embarrass him he cuts the guy's shirt open he shaves the initials of his soon-to-be wife on his chest hair with a straight razor <laughs> and then he cuts his pants open and shaves his testicles with a straight razor <laughs> and while he's doing this i come up to my friend and i whisper in his ear and i go do you remember 13 years ago when you showed the video of me with my feet screwed to the deck being hosed at. Do you remember that? And he looked at me and he goes, yes, I remember that. <laughs> so this, that's the prank, right? And he took it. He's not mad at me about it. He realized fair is fair. Both pranks were pretty heavy, but the people getting pranked were pranksters and so they could take it. <laughs> so, wow, that you know was I mean? a really long game that both of you had played. I'm just wondering if this one is over. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> There's an earlier one because the guy who had hosed me down The reason he hosed me down is because several years before that, at the car hunt event, 
he was drunk and passed out. We painted a target on his forehead. And for the whole day, we were filming uh, with a friend of ours who had a TV show in L.A. who were filming the car hunt for us. So the whole day, he's filmed with his target on his forehead with guns shooting at cars, right? And he didn't know it. And everybody in the entire group, all 30 people, had been told, if Chris gets anywhere near mirror or window or anything, like make sure and stand in front of him so he doesn't see himself. So he was then put into the film, and he was put on national television in a hunt with a target on his forehead. <laughs> That's why he hosed me down because that was him getting me back for doing that. And he's still, that's my best friend. That guy, Chris, he doesn't care. Chris Radcliffe, he's my best friend. But that's what we did to one another as pranksters. I must so. say that there's a level of escalation going there. Well, yeah, the, the straight razor was pretty good. I mean, that was a tough one. But I, I don't think he held that against me. And it was all of us. It was a collective thing to do that. There were many of us involved, but this is, this is what happened. Did you notice that when you asked John what he's afraid of, he didn't mention being pranked back in this long escalation of pranks? I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of it. The people who would prank me, they're not sadists, so they're not going to... I know, I'm kidding, yeah. No, yeah, I'm yeah, but trying that. to beat the shaving with a straight razor, your testicles, I mean, the next level is something like properly scary. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to <laughs> think about <laughs> Okay, getting slowly to the end, if you were to recommend a book, what would it be? There's so many. God, that's a tough question. I would recommend Ring Alivio by Emmett Grogan. I would recommend The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt. I would re recommend Apocalypse Culture, edited by Adam Parfrey. Um, I would recommend the Robert Louis Stevenson novel, The Suicide Club. I would recommend Roadside Picnic by Boris and Arkady Strugatsky. And there's about a hundred more. So there you go. <laughs> okay. So we will leave another five or six for our next conversation. Okay. All right. Uh, so finishing off, we have this hey. one last question. So think about this. If you were not who you are today, who would you be? Well, that's an interesting question. I have an answer for it. I've actually thought about it a lot. When I was a kid, when I was like 12 or 13 years old, as all children do, I think, I looked at my heroes or the people in the media or the artists that I admired. And in this case, among many, I loved the American band called, uh, called the Almond Brothers Band, very famous American band. And these guys are all like Southern hippie guys. They just smoked a bunch of weed, but I didn't know. I was 12 years old. I wanted to party with them. I didn't want to be one of them, but I wanted to know them. But I was 12 years old, 13 years old. So I had an excuse because later when I grew up, I realized, well, those guys are great musicians, but they would be really boring to hang out with. You know, all they want to do is smoke pot and get laid, right? Nothing wrong with that. And I thought about it later. I'm the luckiest man in the world, the, the luckiest man in the world, because it would be great to be an astronaut. It would be great to be uh, an explorer of the Amazon. It would be great to be a paleontologist in Africa. All those things would be wonderful, but not one of those things would be as good as an 18-year-old kid with a transgressive nature and uh, a totally anti-authoritarian streak to fall in with the Suicide Club. I found exactly the right thing that I needed to find. Incredibly lucky, just totally by happenstance. And so I've never wanted to be anybody else. That's not ego speaking, that's just my aesthetic. It would be great to be an astronaut. That would be awesome. I would love that, but that wouldn't have been as good as what I did. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. John, thank you again for another conversation and i do hope that this is not the last one that we have here on this podcast with you i hope it's not the last too love talking to you guys it's, it's fun thank you and talk to you soon thank you for listening to this episode of the catching the next wave podcast 
We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. I don't see clear boundaries anywhere.